Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is October the 13th, 2021. We're well over 500 episodes of Keenan, so uh, I'm thrilled with that. A number of the shows, the show actually began for our, our most loyal listeners will know this. It began on TechCrunch back in 2000 and I think 11 and 12, and we've often focused on technology. We do a lot of technology uh, interviews with journalists, uh, tech executives, entrepreneurs, and thinkers in this area. And recently, it seems as if everyone I'm interviewing in technology is writing a novel. Uh, earlier this week, I I interviewed my old friend Paul Bradley Carr, has a new book out, 1414. Uh, Paul is a, a notorious TechCrunch journalist, one of the best in the business. Uh, a few months ago, I interviewed Kathy Wang. She's a a Silicon Valley executive who has a really interesting tech book out, a kind of feminist thriller called Imposter Syndrome. And today we're back with a a tech executive writing fiction. Um, Today's book is called The Wilkes Insurrection, and the author is uh, Robbie uh, Bach. Robbie is a long time, he doesn't work for them anymore, but a long time Microsoft executive. He was the guy who managed Xbox uh, back in the day, and he's talking to me from his home just outside Seattle. Uh, Robbie, welcome. Uh, what is it about tech people and novels? Why, why are you all in the... And I'm not, of course, saying everyone who's in tech wants to write a novel or has written a novel, but it seems to be an increasingly fashionable thing to do. What what attracted you to write um, The Wilkes Insurrection? Well, to me, I think it's uh, it's ultimately about storytelling. And depending on which tar- part of the tech industry you come from, there's actually a lot of storytelling involved in that. Um, you know, I come from the, from the gaming space. And if you talk to a game developer, a game producer, an artist uh, in a game, they will tell you, oh, it's all about the story. Who are the characters? What's the plot? How do we do pacing? All of those kinds of things. And so I think, you know, that's for me, that's carried over. I discovered, I wrote a nonfiction book, which is uh, also tells some stories. And that I learned, I love to write. And then I said, oh, wow, there's there's a, a story and some characters I really want to write about. Uh, we'll get to the gaming stuff later. I think it's a particularly interesting aspect of your background. I'm interested sure. in your take on gaming and its impact on our culture. Uh, Robbie, we're, of course, in October 2021. Last month, uh, we remembered, uh, certainly didn't celebrate the, um, the the 20th anniversary of 9-11. I had William Arkin on the show, somebody who knows as much about 9-11 as anyone, saying that the U.S. government failed uh, the country on 9-11. Uh, your book isn't about 9-11, but it... it, it it's, it's situated in, in, on a similar terrain. It takes place in Union Station, Washington, D.C., uh, in Seattle, uh, at Washington National uh, Cathedral, uh, at the P- Pentagon, which, of course, was a place that 9-11 took place at, and indeed at the 9-11 Memorial South Pole. Uh, what is it about your book that 
um, connects with 9-11. Obviously, it's not a repeat of that. But what did you learn from 9-11? How were you inspired from 9-11 to write the Wilkes Insurrection? Well, the first thing you need to know is that I flew into New York City on a red eye from Seattle the morning of 9-11. And so I was, I went from JFK to the hotel to catch about an hour or two of sleep before I started a press tour for the original launch of Xbox. And of course, 9-11 happened. Um, that press tour got canceled and I drove across the country 54 hours with three other people in a Ford Taurus uh, to get home. And so for me personally, 9-11 is a, was an emotive experience. Um, and it reminded me of so many things about our country um, and mostly incredibly positive things about our country. Uh, just the, the process of driving across the country and seeing America that way um, was, was actually pretty amazing. Um, and we listened to AM radio the whole time. So you get a, a sense of the culture of the country doing that. Um, the other thing about 9-11 for me is I think culturally as a nation, it was a jumping off point. Um, I would describe it as an end of an age of innocence for us. And it brought the world back home and in a way that's difficult and challenging that I think has affected us subconsciously uh, ever since. And I think it sort of seeped its way into the subconscious of the, of the country. And that absolutely affected how I thought about the Wilkes insurrection. And it how, is, um, how, how might people who are thinking about reading or have read the Wilkes insurrection think of it as a, uh, a post 9-11 chapter. What did 9-11 teach you about the world broadly? Uh, this, your book comes with the subtitle, A Contemporary Thriller. Sure. And uh, there are terrorists involved, some of uh, Arabic descent. Uh, there are American terrorists involved as well. Um, how, is your, uh, how is your book, The Wilkes Insurrection, um, a, a chapter in our 9-11 tragedy? Well, I think if you, if you start from the end of innocence and then you move forward to the recession of 2007 and 2008, which further created a, a divide in our country, both economic and, and, and social, I will say. And you then create a chapter where we have not just what we've always had historically, let's say enemies abroad who are trying to attack our country or with whom we were in some kind of struggle, but you realize that there's a struggle underneath in our country too. And that that struggle has been going on for, for a long time. We just haven't, haven't seen it. And so the combination of 9-11 and that recession, 2007, 2008, 2009, and some other things have happened have sort of brought all that to the surface. And the Wilkes insurrection is in many respects about that struggle, which is now real and in front of us. Um, and obviously fictional characters, fictional circumstances, but certainly set in the milieu of what is a much more divided nation, um, uh, set in the world of fake news and haves and have nots and a pandemic and, and all that comes with that. You have four prominent or four particularly prominent characters in the book, um, Tamika Scott, uh, Ford Wilkes, Jerry Jessup, and um, Obayad bin uh, uh, Latif. Latif. Um, yeah. Which of these characters in particular capture the zeitgeist of our age, the post-Great Recession, 
uh, COVID age? I think there are, um, the one I would highlight is Major Tamika Smith. She is, I'd say the, the uh, protagonist in this story primarily. And Tamika uh, serves in the military. She was uh, at the Air Force Academy. Uh, she's and, biracial, uh, right? She's biracial. Um, she has faced some personal challenges in her life, which I won't do the spoiler alert thing, but those come out in the story. She serves in Iraq and Afghanistan with distinction, but has challenges there too. And she's come back with a little, you know, post-traumatic stress. And I think, you know, in many ways you can say, well, that sums up a lot of us. Um, you know, we, we serve in different ways. Some of us are first responders, some of us are in business, some of us are working in hospitals, whatever it is. And our society over the last, I'd say 10 or 15 years has caused some, some stress and you see more emotional challenges. And Tamika, embodies all of that. And she embodies the strength and courage that I see in Americans, but also the challenges in humanity and failings that we have. Um, and I think, you know, she, be, she to me is the sort of the most well-rounded, and if I use the video game spray, uh, phrase, 3D character that what embodies. What does she look like, uh, Ruby? You say that um, her, her favorite food is chicken, uh, <laughs> perhaps because of its protein, and she Correct. has that military background. Um, is she very beautiful? Was it was it a challenge or or a lot of fun to create these fictional characters? Were they longtime fantasies of yours? Yeah. The, it, interestingly, the the book started with me writing about a hundred pages about four or five characters, and all of those characters are still in the book. Tamika is the only one of those original four or five that make my top five list of characters that I highlight on the website that you showed there, and. Um, you know, so Tamika, uh, you know, is sort of that that special special type, and so those characters started me on a path to a plot, and and so if you ask me, it's absolutely a thriller, and I focus on it as a thriller, but it's a it's a character driven thriller. You really um, dived into this character or all your characters, but particularly Tamika Smith. You even have on your website a playlist of her favorite music. How did you know what Tamika liked to listen to, Robbie? Well, some of it, interestingly, so I listened to thousands of hours of music while writing the book, and some of the music actually influenced the plot of the story. And so I'd be listening to a song, and you know, in my head, I'm thinking, oh, this is Tamika, or this is Jerry Jessup, or this is Obeydin Latif, or this is Bryce Roscovich. And so I literally kept track of those songs as I went along writing. And then in a couple of cases, in particular for um, for two characters, Ford Wilkes and Obey Bin Latif, I actually had to do some some thinking because their music isn't my music. It's not stuff that I listen to with, with any regularity. And so in each of the characters, I created a playlist that both is a combination of sort of things they might listen to and also things that tell a story about their life and where they come from and what they're doing. You even have, a, well, you have the Ford Wilkes playlist, but you even have... A, um... A, a, a general playlist for, um, for, for the book. For the book. How, how did you choose which music people should listen to while reading the book? I'm assuming this somehow reflects your gaming background, that you see music as being central, not just um, to the experience of music itself, but also to reading and thinking. Yeah, it, it, it does. And I my my view is that in most of these media, the merging of, video, music, writing, uh, interactivity from gaming, 
that's all coming together. It's all real. And there are, you know, I had this original vision that I wanted the book to actually have the music playing while you were reading it. Now that obviously didn't What is the out. song that if, if there was, a, as I said, you have this, uh, uh, this Uber Spotify list, the Wilkes Insurrection playlist. Is there a particular song that captures the spirit of your book that you'd, you think summarizes, captures what you're trying to do? I think, there's a, I think there's a couple that are really important for me. Um, one of these is uh, the song called The Fighter, which is a Jim Class Heroes, uh, 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 Ryan Tedder song, which I think is just a really cool song. That's on Tamika's playlist. That closes her playlist. And then the second song is a, um, uh, a song uh, by the Goo Goo Dolls called Fearless which to me is the last song on that playlist. And I think is a, just a very cool song about where we have to be and, and how we have to respond to the changes, the changes we live with. And that's the last song on the, on the book playlist. Robbie, you mentioned earlier that you've written a book before, a very different kind of book, um, a book on um, Xbox in which you talk about the impact of gaming and the responsibility of gamers for our civic culture you know as much about the xbox uh, experience from a business and cultural point of view than anyone you were the the microsoft uh, director of the initiative um last week i had david kushner a very distinguished talented uh, tech journalist on the show um and he's writing a, a new series uh for substack called masters of disruption uh which is about how the gamer generation built the future um <laughs> Guys like William Gibson and Neil Stevenson, uh, at least in terms of their inspiration. Do, do you concur with Kushner? Uh, do you believe that gaming in cultural terms has been perhaps the most influential thing of the last 25 years? Um, I, I, if you ask me for a definitive answer, I'd say no. I think it's certainly had a strong influence, but I think there's others that are in the same, same boat. And the, the point I would make is that not so much gaming itself, but the um, digital socialization, let's say it that way. Um, and that includes gaming for sure. And, you know, Xbox Live brought us into this social world of gaming and that has expanded and grown massively. You now have eSports, that's a big social gaming event. But it also fits in with what goes on in Twitter and Facebook and, and even LinkedIn and, and other places. And I think it's that digital socialization that has changed things. And then you, you look in the pandemic, and you think, gosh, 15 years ago, could we have gotten through the pandemic the way we did without this ability to socialize digitally? And I think the answer is, gosh, it would have been a lot harder. It would have been really challenging and difficult. And so, you know, I think more broadly than just gaming. I think certainly those gamers have contributed to it, but I think there is much, much more to it than that. And that this, this concept of digital socialization is a powerful one. And and as I point out in the Wilkes insurrection, one that can be used for good and for bad. Uh, Robbie, later today, I'm actually interviewing uh, Max Chafkin, who, who's written this controversial biography of Peter Thiel. Uh, he's the new spirit, the new zeitgeist of Silicon Valley. Um, and there's more and more debate in Washington, D.C. and around the country about the impact of sure. tech uh, on the world. Uh, we have the you know, the last few weeks we've had the the Facebook whistleblower, many other things. You know as much about that as anyone. 
you began at Microsoft in 1988. You joined Microsoft straight out of, uh, I think, Stanford Business School. So you're really part of that 1.0 generation of tech executives. Uh, when you look back at 1988, what's the difference between then when you joined Microsoft and even the 90s and today? What's gone wrong, Robbie? Well, I think it's uh, what's gone wrong. I think there are things that have gone impossibly right and some things that absolutely have gone wrong. And the impossibly right things that have happened is that um, the United States has been a, an absolute leader across a number of companies, Microsoft, but a bunch of others, in driving innovation and change and bringing new technology in a world that has um, made things better in many demonstrable ways and has enabled communication. It's enabled um, socialization, as we discussed. Um, it's enabled more efficiency in, in work and, in, and more productivity in what we do. So I think all of that is, is wonderful. With that has come some real technical challenges. And I think the problem we face in all business, but it's particularly the highlight in tech today because of its dominance in, in what's going on, is this question about whether a corporate executive or a group of corporate executives has a responsibility just to their shareholders or to their uh, community writ more broadly. And you know, I think we have a, some amazing people who have built great companies, many of whom, not all, but many of whom have been very focused on um, building shareholder wealth and not as carefully focused on thinking about the broader set of stakeholders who they serve, their employees, their community, their state, the environment, and, and things around them. And, you know, fundamentally, my belief is that has to change. You know, I think um, government has a hard time keeping up in this space. Um, I think it's very difficult for our government to keep up with the pace of change. And leaders in the tech industry and in other industries, I'll say this about the energy industry as well, relative to the environment, have a broader responsibility that they have to live up to. And that's... Um, that's something that hasn't happened in a, in a rich enough way yet. Well, it is happening, as you say. Uh, Lena Khan, the new head of the FTC in Washington, D.C., is leading the charge with, um, uh, with a number of other Biden appointees. The sure. issue these days, as much as anything else, is uh, antitrust and whether these companies, whether it's Amazon or Google or Facebook are monopolies. You lived through that. Fair. Microsoft was accused of being a monopoly, um, yeah. and there was a famous case, the United States versus Microsoft in 2001, when you were still at Microsoft. That changed everything, didn't it? What is your experience as an ex-Microsoft senior executive about the impact of antitrust in challenging the then dominant company, Microsoft, which today the equivalent would be the big tech companies like Amazon and Google? I think the big impact it had was on culture. Um, it it really, in sort of a uh, understated and difficult to see way, changed the culture of the company, and it um, slowed us down. And not because of paperwork and bureaucracy and people and and the tr the trials itself, but it just was a mental drag. And I think it changed sort of the way we thought about innovation and driving things forward. The truth is, I think our antitrust laws are a terribly blunt instrument for dealing with the challenges that we have. Um, you know, they were written, you know, what, almost 100 years ago now. And 
So they're, they're not really tuned to dealing with the challenges we have. They do have an impact though. And I think broadly that impact is more in the culture of what goes on um, rather than the necessarily the economics. Now, ultimately what happens in culture affects the business and affects the economics. And Lord knows, I suspect what's going on inside Facebook right now. I have no inside knowledge, but imagine what's going on in the culture of that place right now. That's got to be <laughs> super hard. Yeah, I don't think any of us can imagine that or want to imagine it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Robbie, I've always thought, and I, I've written about this from time to time, I've always thought that had there not been a, um, uh, an, the antitrust case against Microsoft, we never would have had Web 2.0. We never would have had the rise of Google and Amazon, well, particularly Google, because uh, Microsoft would have crushed them. Do you think that's true? Even if, as you acknowledge or as you suggest, antitrust is a blunt tool, it still was effective in opening up competition uh, at the end of the 1990s and beginning of the 2000s. Um, you know, I, I'll, I'll, I'll say it had some impact, but, you know, take Google as an example. I think Google would have happened in any event. Like it, it, Google wasn't the first search engine. And, and, and by the way, and you guys could have crushed Google had you not had taken your eyes off the ball. I mean, Balmer was obsessed with crushing Google. Yeah. And, and, and the anti, personal opinion, I don't think the antitrust affected our ability to compete with Google. Look, Google, Google was a great company. They did some really smart things. Think about this. You have the benefit of riding the, the wave of broadband adoption. You have a business model that says to the consumer free, which was not a model Microsoft was capable of dealing with. Um, it had a model of charging advertisers, which Microsoft did not do and did not understand. And they had a uh, search technology that it took Microsoft almost 10 years to catch up with. You know, I, I'm not sure, maybe the antitrust played a role in, in slowing our response down, as I said, in, in a cultural sense. But I don't think Microsoft would have dealt with Google regardless. And that's just, a, that's one guy's opinion. I wasn't closely involved in it, but that's one guy's opinion. Um, did it give people some confidence maybe in the marketplace that things were going to be a more level playing field? I'm sure that's true. Um, but I think technology uh, would have would have gotten here anyway. And these entrepreneurs that you see uh, would have gotten here, would have gotten here anyway. That, that again, one guy's opinion. Well, you're not just one guy. You you were very senior at Microsoft for many years. Robert, do you think ultimately um, the antitrust case was even good for Microsoft itself? Uh, in July, they recorded their most profitable quarter. Yeah. And now they're increasingly seen as the elder statesman of, of West Coast tech. People take them a little bit more seriously. Do you think it forced Microsoft to grow up? I, I actually think that's right. Um, and I think, you know, ultimately that growing up, um, wasn't fully complete until Satya, uh, became CEO. You know, I worked with Bill and Steve for a long time. They're amazing people and they were great leaders and did incredible things for Microsoft. So I, 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 I only feel positive things about them, but my view of leadership is that there's leaders for certain times. And Satya was clearly the leader for this time. And um, but that process, you know, I think it is fair to say that some of that process started with the antitrust work, uh, for sure. And it put Microsoft in a state where it could be viewed the way it is. I think it's, it's really quite uh, interesting that the company is as successful as it is, but because of its culture and its way of engaging on issues and, and its 
uh, quote unquote responsible nature, which I think is really unique and real. Um, I think they've managed to stay a little bit out of the fray of some of these other technical uh, technology attacks. Well, that's interesting that uh, another headline from um, from uh, tech recently is that the Pentagon canceled a, a disputed $10 billion technology contract, which Microsoft and Amazon were fighting over. The world of uh, your two worlds are, uh, are converging, aren't they? Uh, the world of the Wilkes insurrection and the Pentagon and uh, high tech and the world of Microsoft and, and West Coast technology. Those two worlds are the same these days, aren't they, Robbie? They really are. It's, I, I will say it's a bit surreal. I started writing this book and wrote the, the basic guts of the book in the 12 months starting in, at the end of 2016 and all through 2017. And so much of what has happened has suddenly played out in a way that is, you know, in some cases, very similar to what happened in the book, but certainly at least consistent with the themes of the book. Uh, and I can't really explain that. It's a it's a little a little surreal. Maybe you should have written some. Uh, you know, I, I, I at the intro I talked about how tech people are writing fiction. Maybe you should have focused on nonfiction. I mean, all <laughs> fiction, of course, is built on nonfiction. We can't avoid it. Just as nonfiction has elements of fiction in it. Uh, Robbie Bach, um, it's a really good new book, the the Wilkes Insurrection. I'm curious. Uh, you have a playlist for the Wilkes Insurrection and uh, playlists for all the characters um, in the book. What about your playlist? What's Robbie Bach's playlist? I am, you're, you're going to laugh. I am a, a straight uh, pop guy. I, I love pop music. Um, you know, this, this will sound strange. I, I love listening to Taylor Swift. I'm a big Ed Sheeran fan. Why is that um, strange? What's strange about it? Well, I think most people think of her as mostly a... a a, a pop artist for females, but she, I think she's tells, she's a great storyteller. What do your kids think of that? You've got kids, right? You've got three kids. I do. I do. And, and uh, Taylor Swift is one, one of my daughter's uh, favorite artists. Um, but I listen to a lot of train. Um, I'm actually a little old school. Um, so I like the Eagles, but I am a sort of in the center uh, pop kind of guy. And finally, Robbie, um, as I said, uh, if you want a fast-paced thriller, The Wilkes Insurrection, which is just out, is for you. What else should people be reading in these strange times? You're talking to me from outside um, uh, Seattle, where you live. Um, I have uh, I have two things I would suggest uh, people to read. One actually happens to be Bill Gates' recent book on the environment and energy and, and how we're going to get through the challenges we have. I'm about halfway through that book, and it is, um, you know, Super factual, super grounded, very interesting, and I think a, a book for our time. The second thing I encourage people to read, there's a publication called The Week, um, and it literally is The Week. Um, and you can go online and just uh, read them online, but you can also subscribe to it. And what I love about The Week is it presents not just one point of view, but points of view from across the spectrum. Um, and I think more than ever, what we need is factual points of view from across the spectrum so that people can can actually really read and understand what is going on and try to make up some some decisions for themselves. Well, you've done that in the Wilkes Insurrection. It's fast-paced. It's interesting. It's contemporary. Congratulations, Robbie Barr. Keep well. Keep writing. Keep thinking. And I'd love to talk to you in the not-too-distant future about Microsoft technology and how we're going to make the world a better place. Thank you so much. I enjoyed being on. Thanks a lot.